Chris, welcome to episode 351 of X Lapsed, where uh, I suppose we can officially say we're on the road to 400. Uh, I come to you today uh, very, very tired, very, very sore, and very, very early. Um, I'm still in the guest room. If you listen to episode 350, you'll know that I was exposed once again to a COVID-positive person, uh, a person who just happened to be uh, in my mouth for the better part of an hour. It was a, a my dentist, or dental hygienist, I suppose. And, well, real or imagined, um, I, you know, I do have acute paranoia and, uh, what's that word when you think you... Hypochondria, that's, that's the other one. I, I have a near-fatal hypochondria where everything, you know, every sniffle, every sneeze is like, uh-oh, it's back, you know? And um, I'm trying to, like taste food and it's like okay is my taste still here okay it's kind of still yeah i think it's still there i think it's the same but maybe it's different i it's just it's a real pain in the ass i tell you so uh i'm sleeping on the pile of rocks that we call our guest bed and uh well i just couldn't wait to get up and uh what better place to be than in front of this microphone to talk to all of you about uh what i thought was the last Destiny of X, you know, quote-unquote number one we'd be talking about. I, I'd totally forgotten about New Mutants, which uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about later. But today, it is Legion of X number one, our follow-up to Way of X. Uh, this had a June 2022 cover date. The story is called Do What Thou, T- Do what Thou Wilt. Now, this is a reference to Thalema, or Thalema, which is a uh, Western esoteric and occult social or spiritual society and a new religious movement founded in the early 1900s by Aleister Crowley. Now, it's worth noting, on our recap page, you know, the double-page spread of our roll call and cred, there is a little recap there. There always is. I usually don't go into it. I, actually, I never go into it. But the recap itself opens with the line, The whole of the law, like whole, W-H-O-L-E, not like a, you know, gaping, you know, emptiness, void. Um, now, this is the other half of that quote from uh, the Book of the Law. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Now, the other two guiding quotes from the book of the law, which is the, you know, Thelema book, I suppose, they are, uh, every man and woman is a star, and love is the law, love under will. Which I suppose I should drop in the old uh, memory bank here to see if uh, if those uh, guiding quotes will be titles for upcoming issues of this series. Anyway, back to those credits. Uh, written by Cy Spurrier, with art by Jean, Jan Bezaldua. However you say that, I apologize. Colors, Federico Blee. Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles. Designs, Muller and Bowen. Edits, Okoye, Brunstead, White, Sabolsky. Cover price, $5. This one went on sale, five twenty-two twenty-two. Now, we open with Legion delivering a monologue and uh, welcoming everybody back. <laughs> you know, it's a, hey, we've been gone a little bit. Welcome back. Uh, he also gives us a quick and dirty recap of the series that came before it, of course, Way of X. And, uh, you know, that's probably a really, really smart thing to do, because no matter how much we love that book, um, it sold pretty poorly. Anyway, Legion speaks of the altar, which is sort of kind of another dimension that exists sort of kind of in his mind. <laughs> but it's also, you could get there from Krakoa or Rocco. It's, it's a very nebulous and strange thing. Uh, what we do know about it is that it is the headquarters for Nightcrawler's new team of legionaries. Speaking of whom, we pop into the station of the altar where we check in on a meeting that Kurt's conducting. And he's basically, you know, he's basically the, the head patrolman here. He's giving out uh, that day's orders. 
It's worth noting that Fabian Cortez is stood to his immediate right, so clearly he's a, I guess we can say he's a high-ranking member of this crew or this team or this whatever we're calling them. Anyway, the gist here is that there are a few new cases for the Legionaries to handle. The first one has to do with the possession with intent at the Healing Gardens, and Pixie and Lost will be sent off to see to that. Number two is a second law retrieval at the Green Lagoon, and of course the second law of Krakoa is murder no man. Now Kurt says that the Heavy Squad is going to be taking care of that, along with Zabi, or Zabby. Who, who the hell is Zabby? Huh. Three, Rockslide, or whatever used to be Rockslide pre-X of Tens, is being graffitied, and Maggot will be sent off to look into that. Finally, there have been a series of burglaries, and Kurt assumes that they're just Gambit trying to get attention. You know, uh, stealing things is not a crime on Krakoa. So he sees this as a petulant attempt at just getting some spotlight for our friend Remy. To which I would say, you know, anything would be better than being stuck in Otherworld in Knights of X, right? So go ahead and steal. Now it's worth noting here that the other legionaries pictured in this panel include the Zorns, Chamber, Gorgon, and also Dr. Nemesis, but we'll be seeing a lot more of him later on uh, today. The meeting comes to a close, and Lost asks Kurt if he believes that someone or something called the Skinjacker might be behind the possession case. And uh, the Skinjacker is giving me, you know, Patchwork Man vibes here. I think it's a, you know, just a code name for a shady or, uh, I suppose, dangerous character that they don't have a whole lot of information on. Maybe they think he potential or they could potentially be a, a, a rumor a, you know a schoolyard sort of thing like the patchwork man was at the start don't know maybe we'll find out uh, kurt definitely believes this is the case in either event now this conversation they're having is cut short because nightcrawler finds himself summoned by the queen of the solar system back to legion where it's revealed that the person that he'd been monologuing to is blindfold see he's not welcoming us back even though maybe kind of in a meta way he was but uh he was actually welcoming Blindfold back. Now, she and David were an item during the X-Men Legacy days back, uh, probably, oh boy, how long? That was like pre-Marvel um, Now, I believe. And that was also Simon Spurrier. Now, she died during the latter half of the pre-Hoxpox Rosenberg run, along with a whole lot of other people. Uh, she could not be resurrected due to the fact that she's a precog. Now that the precog ban is behind us, she was able to be brought back. Now, I'm not entirely sure if the ban has been publicized yet, as that seemed to just be an Xavier Magneto Mora secret. But who knows? I mean, David seems to know about it. Uh, Blindfold now seems to know about it. I don't know how widespread this, uh, this ban on precogs has been made, you know, post-Inferno. Uh, it seems like that's something that could really take a bite out of the confidence that many folks might have in the Quiet Council. Anyway, Ruth uh, reveals here that she chose to be brought back without her body. Now, I'm not entirely sure how that's going to work out, but uh, she claims that now she's able to uh, see so much more than she could before. Like, she's freed. You know, maybe the body was holding her back, the, the vessel, the shell. I don't know. A double-page spread of roll call and cred. Our characters include Nightcrawler, Juggernaut, Pixie, Dr. Nemesis, Legion... Forget me, what, who? Forget me? I don't, I don't know who that is. Uh, Lost and Fabian Cortez. From here we move to an info page, and these are the three laws of Krakoa with annotations by Nightcrawler with some lessons learned. Uh, the first one, of course, is make more mutants. And Nightcrawler has notes here, like liner notes in the page here, saying that it can't enforce a doctrine of compulsory reproduction. And we've already seen how that would play out, how, how that has played out, actually. We know about the Bowery. We know about Stacy X's, you know, here, drop your bit, drop your un unwanted babies here, you know, signs around the island. Uh, the second one, of course, is Murder No Men. And uh, Nightcrawler refers to this one as being necessarily reductive, saying that death mustn't lose meaning or else life will follow suit. And I suppose we could argue that maybe, maybe we have leaned into that a little bit hard. The third one is Respect the Sacred Land. Uh, to which Nightcrawler opines that the sacred land is not a place, so to speak. It's actually mutant kind. Finally, there's a note about the spark. Now, the spark is that nebulous thing that Nightcrawler, like, thought up at the end of Way of X, which I didn't entirely understand 
Um, I don't know if it's if I'm supposed to understand it. I, I may probably not. I think we're. I think that's purposely kind of vague, and it'll like maybe play itself out and define itself as we become more familiar with uh, Nightcrawler's current uh, mission. But the spark has uh, three lines under it. It says, "Try new things," which, to be honest, would probably carry a little bit more weight if the status quo didn't change like every five minutes. Anyway, back to comics. Kurt arrives in Storm's throne room on Mars Araco. Can't tell if it's been destroyed or not like it was in uh, X- X-Men Red Number 1, but uh, I guess it really doesn't matter, does it? Anyway, Kurt uh, dramatically <laughs> and, uh, and kind of like uh, sarcastically bows to Storm as the you know queen, the regent. And she doesn't really appreciate it since uh, she's kind of... I don't know that she really knows what her role is just yet. She knows what she's... Been tasked with And she knows the seat of power that she holds But uh, she really doesn't like being bowed to Or being referred to Like uh, as a as royalty uh, She does take it in stride Of course she and Kurt are friends forever at this point Now she introduces our man To Aura Serrata The Witness Now this is a member of the Great Ring of Araco Who we've heard of before But have not yet met Now her role is the Chair of Law and another name for this critter is Arbitrix. Now, how do I describe this thing? I mean, it's a simple, simple, simple description, but at the same time, it's very strange as well. It kind of looks like a slug sat atop a giant floating eyeball. Um, and, like, the, the slug's eyes kind of, like, connect. There's, like, optic nerves of sorts. But, like... Not really, like, visceral, but more, like, ethereal. It's, uh, it's bizarre. But if nothing else, it's a pretty memorable visual, which is more than we can say for a lot of these uh, Iraqi characters, right? Now, Aura guides Nightcrawler over to the Circle Perilous, where there's currently a duel in progress having to do with worship. It's as though they're, like, someone's been tried with the crime of worship. It's bizarre, and, and we'll we'll talk more on that uh, later on here. Uh, the gimmick here is that Aura needs Nightcrawler's help checking into the fact that one of their deities has gone missing. Gods just come and go from this place, or they visit, or they try to curry favor and followers and worshippers. It's uh, we'll, we'll 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 talk more about that. Um, now this surprises Kurt, as he had always assumed that the Iraqi were atheist, and Aura says, you know, that's kind of reductive. Now, it's not to say that they don't believe in gods. I mean, this is the fantastical Marvel Universe, of course. There are gods walking around pretty much on every street. Now, the thing of it is, the Iraqi just haven't found one worth their worship. Now, Aura explains her role at the Circle Perilous. She's basically there to bear witness. And if a loser of a duel refuses to, I guess, concede or die, um, she steps in and... uh, well, it's a giant eyeball. She looks at them, and this causes them to, quote, stop being, unquote. From here, we hop back to Krakoa to check in with... Well, who the hell is this? Huh. Oh, this is Zabi. Uh, must be a brand new character. I certainly don't remember ever having seen him before. Anyway, this uh, Zabi is uh, chatting up some mole man-looking goofball with smoke pouring out of his ears at the, uh, the Green Lagoon. Anyway, the deal here is that the mole man-looking guy recently murdered his wife and also destroyed his whole neighborhood back in Queens. And the United States apparently requested he be extradited back for trial and sentencing, which, due to all the diplomatic immunity and amnesty stuff, isn't something Krakow would normally take part in, so it's weird that the U.S. would even ask at this point. Anyway, this uh, Zabi, Zabi fella, uh, informs him that uh, they won't be shipping him back to the States. However there's still going to be some sort of justice served. Now, this mole man-looking fella, his real name is Paulie the pa- Paulie the Paul or Paulie the Pale da Costa. Uh, no relation to, to Bobby, of course. Now, steam or smoke starts pouring out of his ear here, just more and more smoke, and it forms a sort of golem that appears to be primed and ready to take down this... Who is this guy again? That probably doesn't matter. Uh, from here, this... Uh, What's-his-face calls for his partner to burst in, and that partner is the Juggernaut. Now, Kane bursts in, just breaks down walls, punches the smoke monster, which, well, it isn't terribly effective since, of course, it's made of smoke. 
Uh, it does cause enough of a distraction, however, so that some dude we've never seen before can sneak up behind Paulie the Paul or Paulie the Pale and pop him with, like, a taser in the neck. Juggernaut sees this new guy and asks just who in the hell he is, which, I mean, that's a pretty great question, isn't it? Right? I mean, I get on the editors for a lot on this show, but just dropping a brand new character in this book without any sort of introduction, and then, like, just in the middle of a book, it's in the middle of a scene, even, I mean... Where is the quality control here? I, who are we talking about again? Oh, anyway. Next stop, the healing gardens for the possession case. Here, we've got Lost and Pixie. They're chatting up Spike, who is usually the Spike fella, the Spike kid. He's usually nothing more than a slab of X-Men wallpaper. And I'm pretty sure he was part of the Grant Morrison-era mutant surge, um, where, I mean, back then we got like a bunch of odd-looking characters who really didn't do much of anything. And uh, they've mostly been forgotten about since Now for my fellow fake-ass comics historian, Spike, real name Gary Walsh First appeared in New X-Men number 126, July 2002 cover date Created by Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely Anyway, we find out here that Spike and his pals were the ones painting Rockslide But they only did so to make him happy You see, Rockslide apparently started laughing and dancing as they graffito-tagged him So, uh, you know, no harm done But then, everything suddenly went black for Spike. Spike had this weird out-of-body sensation, and when he woke up, he was missing his left hand. Huh. The Morlock healer is there, and he mentions that this amputation was not a neat job. And he suggests that whoever this possessor is, well, they made Spike take a belly full of painkillers before removing his own left hand. Lost asks Spike to return to the station with them so they can maybe try to get to the bottom of this. Spike refuses because he fears reprisal from this skinjacker. Lost relates to him how, up till recently, well, she wasn't in complete control of her own body. And that's that whole onslaught thing from Way of X that we've already talked about. But she's better now, and she learned the true meaning of evil. And I guess uh, that's all Spike really needed to hear to convince him. He says he will return to the station and help the Legionaries. Back to Marzarocco. Here, we're introduced to Weaponless Zen. Now, she's got like a disembodied head in a box. It's the head of Ugesh, with which she summons forth a god, Teshup the Thunderer, for the Iraqis to do battle with in the Circle Perilous. Now, it turns out, since relocating the Mars, Araco has had a fair amount of run-ins with deities. Anyway, Aura Serata sends a bunch of Iraqi warriors to do battle with the Thunderer. It was not going to be a one-on-one. It was just, you know, a melee Beat this dude down. Beat this god down. So Teshub the Thunderer, or Teshub the Thunderer, in real-world mythology, is the Hurrian sky weather god. His Greek equivalent would be Zeus. Now, the Hurrians were a people of the Bronze Age near east who lived in the regions of Anatolia, Syria, and northern Mesopotamia. From here, it's an info page, and it's some notes on Orisarata, also the Seat of Law, and the God Law. Don't really get a whole heck of a lot to chew on here. It's mostly just, uh, I think we're just laying some foundation. We'll dig more into that as we learn more. Back to comics. And the Iraqis have bested the Thunderer. Now, the god refuses to yield, as I would suppose gods would <laughs> probably do. And so, Aura Serata does that thing where she just, uh, you know, she's a giant eye. She looks at him in the eye, and he perishes. Aura Serata then informs Kurt that he'll be taking Zen back to Krakoa with him to try and track down their missing deity, who she refers to as being a trickster god. Aura warns that Kurt better get on the stick, otherwise, uh, well, if he takes too much time, she's going to get involved, and, uh, well, uh, suffice it to say, that would not be a good thing. From here, we shift back to the Quiet Council on Krakoa, where Abigail Brand calls into Xavier to chat about Legion. You see, she was tasked with monitoring him. I mean, she's like a quadruple agent at this point. Uh, now, he had been atop Olympus Mons on Mars for six months now. Six months? Really? I mean, Hox Pox to Inferno was four weeks, right? <laughs> or a month and a half or something. Ew. Okay, so there have been six months since Legion's been up there. Fair enough. Uh, anyway, the point here is he's not there anymore. He has vanished from Olympus Mons, and she wanted to let Chuck know that his son is on the move. Well, Charles is not terribly surprised when, just moments later, Legion has crashed the Quiet Council meeting. And uh, Xavier does not appreciate seeing his boy. It's worth noting, 
Chuck removes his Cerebro helmet here, which doesn't happen often at all. I mean, we could probably count on one hand how many times he's taken that damn helmet off in the past three years. Also, in one of those Chris Problem continuity hiccups, uh, Colossus is beardless. I mean, we, we know what these people look like. <laughs> Don't we have a character Bible somewhere? Uh, also, Hope has taken Magneto's seat here, so we're definitely post Immortal X-Men number one, maybe even Immortal X-Men number two, because we haven't seen her officially, you know, sworn in yet. Anyway, Legion has come here to chat up Warlock, who's, of course, hanging out with Doug, hanging out with Krakoa. Now, you see, Blindfold was able to get a vision of Warlock's father, the Magus, or Magus, however you say that word. And in this scene, she was able to witness him being murdered by our favorite pink marshmallow, Nimrod. Now, Xavier, he's still not too keen on David crashing this party to spill those beans. And Xavier's kind of being a bigger dick than usual. Back to Nightcrawler and Zen. Now, they talk about how Kurt was once sort of kind of a priest, which... Oh, boy. Um, this is a callback to the Chuck Austin era. In, in a story arc there, um, Chuck Austin was um, very much of the school of thought of, like, controversy creates cash, I think. You just push the envelope as far as you can. You try to annoy and uh, mock as many people as possible in hopes that maybe someone starts talking to you. I guess, like, a term for Chuck Austin would just be, like, cage rattler. <laughs> you know, he just he was trying to annoy... Every group, all the fans. <laughs> it was it was quite a time. Anyway, this story was when the Church of Humanity was trying to install Nightcrawler as like the Pope or something. It was very very bizarre. It was bonkers actually. It even included, if you can believe it, exploding communion wafers. Like you know, like Body of Christ. You know, you you put it on your tongue, you, and they exploded. Um, Absolute garbage. Um, it, it's it's a wonder we still have X Men comics. Anyway, upon finding out that Kurt is like not a priest, Zen immediately asks if he wants to, uh, you know, head off to the side and bump uglies for a bit. Uh, they also talk a little bit about mutant powers slash mutant weapons. Of course, the Iraqi refer to their powers as weapons. And we learn that Zen was given blade enhancements by the Vile. Uh, we could probably assume that that's Tarn the Uncaring's Locust Vile, since there, you know, there is a whole lot of body work and things like grafting going on with with those uh, with those creeps. Uh, she then takes a swipe at Kurt with said blades, uh, because I guess we needed a page with action on it. I don't, I don't know. The page comes across as as kind of forced. Uh, yeah, very. You know, very comic booky, I suppose, uh, we could say. Anyway, we learn here that Zen's actual mutant power, mutant gift, mutant weapon is to, quote, paint with truth, which she regards as being a very, very pointless power. Uh, we follow the pair into the station where Dr. Nemesis lost and Pixie are still working with Spike. We learn that the uh, skinjacker is actually another piece of X-Men wallpaper, a character called Switch. Now, Switch, Devin Alomar, first appeared in X-Force number 87, December 1998 cover date. He was created by John Francis Moore and Jim Chung. Now, he's only been seen, like, once since this X-Force arc. Uh, his power is to mentally displace the frequency range of the alpha wave patterns in someone's mind, which, you know, kind of fits the bill for this story. Uh, Kurt orders that Cortez pop in on Sage to run a trace on Switch. And Fabes dutifully runs off here. It's weird seeing him so, uh, like, almost gelded. <laughs> He's just, you know, not wanting to make waves. He's just a, a good and reasonable fellow now. Then, Juggernaut and some dude. What the hell is this? Uh, some guy enters the room. Uh, now, Juggs has got Paulie slung over his shoulder, and Kane wants to deliver the baddie to the Quiet Council for judgment, like, right away. But that's not what the Legionaries are all about. Now, Kane tries to pull the My Brother is Xavier card, but that doesn't seem to hold quite as much water as he seems to think it does. He also monologues for a bit to remind us that he's, quote, not technically a mutant, unquote, which he's not a mutant in the slightest. There's, there's no technically about it. He's not technically a mutant as much as I'm not technically a mutant. So what's even the point here? Maybe this is just like a reminder aside here. It's like, hey, uh, new readers, people who don't follow these books, this guy is not a mutant, technically, mm, or, or at all, or at all. 
Now about playing the Xavier card, if we jump back to X-Men Unlimited, the Juggernaut and Deadpool story that went on forever, we will remember that Xavier did invite Kane to live on Krakoa. Inconveniently, we might also remember that Kane turned that invite down. So, whoops. It's like I always say when we bump up against a, you know, a current year X-Men Unlimited, your, your guess is as good as mine if it's going to be an actual incontinuity story or something that'll ever be referenced again. Anyway, from here, we hop to our ending. David and Ruth, they're making some time in the astral whatever the hell, and uh, they are confronted by Mother Righteous. Who? Couldn't tell you. Maybe, maybe she's that god that Kurt's supposed to be tracking down for the big eyeball. Don't know. Probably find out next time, but not next episode, because next episode is the actual last Destiny of X, quote-unquote, number one, New Mutants number 25, which... You know, this is a long time coming. Now, New Mutants has kind of been one of those under-the-radar books for the entirety of this uh, of this era, right? It's also a book that was heavily, heavily, ridiculously delayed. Um, they, like, they just stopped putting it out a few months, or actually several months ago at this point. It's like, hey, take New Mutants off the list. To the point where... Like, uh, my DCBS order, I ordered New Mutants number 26 probably four times because it kept getting resolicited and pushed back and taken off the list. And, I mean, I just did my, my pre-orders a couple days ago, and I think I ordered New Mutants number 30, which is like five issues. six. It's a lot of issues from now, right? It's, I don't think I'll see that one anytime soon, but uh, Marvel's soliciting it at the same time that they're soliciting like 27. It's very, very bizarre. To the point where I've ordered it so many times that I still... It's still not on my order. So I, I checked my unshipped items list on DCBS when I was uh, working on some upcoming cover art for the show. And I saw that New Mutants number 26 came out. I didn't get it. I didn't order it, apparently. I ordered it four times, but it wasn't on my order. So I'm going to actually have to go out to the store and buy uh, New Mutants number 26. Also New Mutants number 27. The next book they're sending me is 28. Which, Lord only knows when or if that'll ever come out It's, uh... I mean, I've talked a lot of late about Marvel's uh, distribution woes And how, uh, it's everybody's fault but Marvel's But, mm, this is, uh, very, very frustrating And, I mean, I'm a dude who does a show about these books So I have to make sure I have these books So I have, like, extra impetus toward knowing if and when books are coming out I couldn't imagine how a casual fan... You know, if there is such a thing as a casual New Mutants fan anymore, uh, I couldn't imagine them trying to follow this book. You know, they their 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 collection of New Mutants Volume Four would be spotty at best. But um, as always, we will do our best. I do have issue twenty-five here. That one is in my hands, so um, that'll be next episode, I guess. Anyway, enough about that. Let's talk a little bit about Legion of X number one here. Um, Arako is becoming more and more challenging on a philosophical level, a, a theological level, um, which is good, is good, I think. Um, now, the battle in the Circle Perilous having to do with someone daring to worship, well, I mean, there's interesting uh, fodder there, stuff to chew on, but it also opens us up to some potentially hinky discussion. Um, as I mentioned with the Nazarene mutant uh, in Immortal X-Men number one, I kind of get a bit uncomfortable when our stories start to explore concepts like faith and religion and things that are very personal to a lot of people, because it usually winds up enforcing the idea that people who believe are somehow foolish to do so. It's always aimed at, you know, shining a light on the lowest hanging fruit, the, you know, the lowest common denominator. And uh, it takes for granted, you know, people of faith who are rational, which is most people, right? And uh, unfortunately, it lumps everybody together in this, like, weird, extreme, uh, ignorant, just a real ugly way, right? And it only seems interested in taking the piss out of them. Uh, making them feel silly for, for their beliefs Making them feel foolish for everything that uh, they hold true about themselves And their philosophy on on the world and beyond it, it mocks them And, I mean, I've said it before I feel like I'm saying this a lot lately I don't see an upside to that kind of story 
the comics fandom, it shrinks and it shrinks and it shrinks, and eventually it's going to shrink down to nothing. And I'm not a doom and gloom guy, as I've mentioned before, but I think that uh, a, an effort needs to be made to make sure that comics are welcoming to everybody. You know, I, that, that's like a big thing nowadays, you know, uh, making sure things are accessible to everybody. I don't think that means to exclude other people. I think everybody should have a everybody should have a seat at the table here. Everybody should feel welcome, and nobody should feel attacked for being who they are. It's you know if if you break us down, humans, uh, we have a whole lot more in common than we do different. You know, down to the molecular level and experiential level, we have so many similarities to celebrate, and the differences should be celebrated as well. They shouldn't be mocked. They shouldn't... Uh, we, we could go down a rabbit hole there, but we won't. Um, I just want everybody to be treated um, with kindness in our, in our fandom here because the comic fans, actual comic fans, not the people who see the movies and buy the t-shirts, but the people who actually you know, keep this industry afloat, going to a comic shop every Wednesday, helping out the local retailer, uh, buying, buying books here, supporting writers and artists who we've, who we've gotten so much enjoyment and entertainment from over these years. We are a, uh, kind of a special breed. You know, we're the last of a breed, I feel, and, uh, we need to take care of one another. We need to treat each other with kindness and acceptance. No matter what we feel, what we agree with, what we don't agree with, we're all in this, uh, you know, fandom together. This is a a family. It's a weird family, but it's a family, and uh, we need we need to be kind to one another. Anyway, let's uh, let's continue. Uh, Paulie, Paulie's situation here is it's a little bit odd. Here, our smoke pouring mole man looking fella. Now, it really starts to call into question the whole mutant amnesty diplomatic immunity thing, right? This hasn't really been explored all that much. Uh, we saw it, it loomed pretty large in Hawksbox, right? Sabretooth was put on trial and he was taken away. Uh, of course, we had uh, the Fantastic Four trying to, you know, shoo uh, Mystique, Toad, and Sabretooth away from damage control. It, we had some discussion, but it really hasn't been touched on much since, unless I'm missing something very obvious, which is certainly a possibility. I feel... Like, this series is going to explore concepts like redemption and also the possibility of there being pitless justice. You know, uh, justice served on Krakoa that isn't pri- imprisonment and also has nothing to do with the pit. That could be interesting. But it doesn't quite sit well with me, 100% anyway. Of course, we're only a few pages into this story. Things can change. Things can be uh, expanded upon, stuff like that. But, I mean, if we just look at this instance here, Paulie killed his wife, destroyed his neighborhood, resulting in uh, potentially uh, many, many more casualties, or at least injuries. And from the looks of it, he might not have to actually pay for those crimes the way that Krakoans, generally speaking, have been paying for their crimes, for breaking one of those three, or I guess any of those three laws. It could be multiple broken laws there, I suppose. But, uh, again, not sure. Again, we're only an issue in. Paulie might just be one spoke in the wheel of this story. I don't know if this will explore... I mean, we we just wrapped up Hellions not too long ago. And that entire concept was predicated on putting the inconvenient mutants together in order to work through their psychological maladies, right? Their their trauma, get over their their stuff. I wonder if maybe we're headed in a similar similar direction. Not so much like relaunching Hellions with the with Paulie the Paul as the star here, but maybe there's going to be some sort of uh, rehabilitation um, program that uh, Nightcrawler and the Legionaries will try to put together. Maybe, I mean, we are going into some weird territory here, uh, exploring religion and philosophy. It, who who could say maybe we won't get a like a Krakoan twelve step program, which I mean, in twelve step programs are usually faith based, so that would stand to reason as a possibility, right? I guess we'll see how it goes. I feel uneasy about it, which is a good place to be because I, I do I I feel like I've got skin in the game here. I feel like I actually care about how this story is going to unfold, which is not something we can say about many stories nowadays, unfortunately. So we will put a pin in that for now, and we'll we'll keep track of it as we work our way through. Um, one last thing here, uh, forget me not. 
Now, I had a lot of fun with him here, you know, saying, who's that? What's this? What's uh, editors? Who is this guy? But uh, our, <laughs> I was going to say our X-Men creators, but no, this is just comic creators. Um, they really don't know when to stop with a joke. You know, I, I don't know that that's a commentary on current year creators, um, but uh, they don't know when to stop. You know, they, they beat the dead horse until it's powder. <laughs> and I feel like this forget-me-not joke might get old kind of quickly. I liked it here. It'll all really depend on where it goes from here. But um, if every single page is someone saying, who are you? Uh, it's going to it's gonna get old. I mean, we're, we're still doing the, you know, Professor Xavier is a jerk references. Like every, every month there's at least one, it seems. We're still talking about Kitty being scared of Storm's mohawk. We're still having pe- the creators like climb on top of one another to be the first one that month to say, to me, my X-Men. It gets old, and I worry that uh, Forget-Me-Not will uh, will also <laughs> kind of get old and played out. But overall, um, this is another pretty fun issue here. Um, you know, I've been complaining, or not, maybe complaining is too harsh a term for that. It probably isn't. I guess I have been complaining about how bloated the line has gotten here. But here with Legion of X, it does feel like a true continuation of Way of X, which was one that I very much enjoyed. And um, it feels like this one actually has a purpose. Um, It's maybe running a little too neck and neck with the Sabretooth miniseries as it uh, pertains to concepts like punishment and concepts like justice and redemption. But um, I guess we'll we'll see how it plays out here. Maybe hopefully they will... uh, not contradict one another, and hopefully they will only enhance this, uh, you know, the underpinnings of the Krakoan society here that none of the other books seem interested or uh, perhaps even allowed to address. Um, we did get a lot of seeds planted here. Things like the Skinjacker switch, will, which I'm assuming we'll probably hear and talk more about in upcoming issues. Uh, also... David and Ruth's relationship, um, the Magus or Magus, Magus, however you say that, being killed by Nimrod, why would that be, right? Why would Nimrod go after Warlock's dad? Well, maybe we'll find, I'm sure we will find out, but um, we really don't know enough about that now to opine, so uh, I won't. (laughs) We will wait until Simon and company tell us that story. Uh, Speaking of Simon and company here, um, I definitely miss Bob Quinn's art. Bob Quinn is a Phenomenal artist Wonderful, wonderful work Uh, Really was I was going to say he was a high point of Way of X But Way of X was just a a wonderful book All, all, you know, from all angles I I love the story, I love the writing I love the dialogue, I love the art And uh, Bizaldua, no slouch Really good art I just still, I miss Bob Quinn's work there But um, overall If you enjoyed Way of X If you miss Way of X If you want to check out a story that explores some of the you know, a nebulous, scary darkness under the surface of Krakoa. You could do far worse than this issue. I would recommend you check it out. But um, I think that's about all I got for this one. Of course, everything I said today was my opinion, and I would really like to hear yours. And I'll give you contact information in just a little bit. But first, I wanted to thank the folks who reached out after uh, episode 350 dropped to, uh, you know, say kind things about the milestone. So (laughs) thank you all. So, so much for that. Um, even heard from our friend uh, Professor Allen, who uh, co-signed on my, I thought was kind of a cynical take on the CGC slab phenomenon, um, wherein I suggested that uh, the comics industry is uh, really chasing that, you know, collectible feel, right? And um, I, I thought more about that as I laid in a very, very uncomfortable bed last night. <laughs> And how the entire concept of collectability in comics was something that Reggie and I were working on a project to uh, to discuss as a uh, weird comics history series, and I, I started like going through my my research mentally, and um, you, know, you try to put a f- your your finger on exactly when this happened, right? And it, it's it, this phenomenon as comics as collectible isn't new, you know. It was. Almost always artificial, you know, uh, maybe not at the very beginning, because when collectability in comics kind of became a thing, there was like intrinsic motivation to collect these books. You know, uh, the the first or second generation of fandom, depending on how you 
how you uh, reference them. I, I think some folks say they're the second generation of comics fans, but the first um, generation of connected comics fans. And I mean, these are like a very late golden age and into the silver age fans here who put out, you know, fanzines. They were like a united group of fans here who loved comic books. And I have a handful of uh, ancient fanzines that I'd found in in garbage boxes at at various shops. And thankfully, these are things that uh, nobody really cares about except people like me. So I'm able to get them for a song, usually. And one of the things that struck me about several of these was that there were um, maybe not so much organized price guides, but there were prices in there. Um, People selling... Their, their back issues, or if they had doubles of back issues, or, or offering for trades, you know, trade, uh, not trade paperbacks, of course, but trading, you know, uh, exchanging comics with other fans in uh, across the country or across the city, or however, you know, the circulation works out. And I think, you know, I don't have any hard evidence to suggest this, but uh, I would assume that that's the first time a valuation was put on, a, a, you know, a periodical comic book, right? And uh, as, you know, you get into the later Silver Age and into the Bronze Age, uh, their fanzines kind of, uh, I, I don't want to say exploded, but relatively speaking, there were more of them, right? There were a lot more fanzines here, and I have several, you know, my most of mine are from the uh, late Bronze Age, which is probably the golden age of fanzines. I mean, around this point, even Dr. Frederick Wortham was getting in on, you know, on fandom and fanzines and uh, really celebrating fanzines. You know, not people usually think of Wortham as just the boogeyman and nothing more without knowing what happened in, in the later years of his, uh, of his writing about comics. But um, fanzines were a big thing, and they usually had, you know, either classifieds where people would sell or put what they were looking for. That's where, like, valuation was kind of forming. This was before there were brick-and-mortar comic shops, so the back-issue bins weren't necessarily a physical thing just yet. And, of course, that's a blanket statement. You know, uh, that's not to say that there isn't a pharmacy that had a stack of old comics there for sale, and maybe they they crossed out the 25 cents on it and put 10 cents on it because they wanted it the hell out of their store. I mean, I've got plenty of Silver Age comics where the cover price is crossed out and replaced with some other nebulous price, whether it's higher or lower. But my point here, if I even have one, is that uh, I think this is the first time that a actual monetary figure evaluation was put on uh, the back issues. And of course, uh, this is kind of like uh, micro-collectability, uh, right? The comics industry knew that there was a measure of collectability, and they would even advertise comics as being collector's issue or collector's items. Uh, you know, Dazzler number one, collector's item special, pick it up, right? This is like a micro look at the comic as a collectible. And over the course of the 80s, that micro turned into the macro, where it became more mainstream. And you had things like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles hitting, you know, the indie boom, the black and white boom, wherein there was actual scarcity involved in making something a collectible. It was accidental scarcity, I would imagine. I I would assume that the independent creators out there didn't have the funds or resources to run off a, you know, 100,000 print run of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles number one, right? So there were less of them available. There was a demand there. Bada bing, bada boom. You've got a comic that people are willing to pay more than cover price for, and sometimes a lot more than cover price for. And I mean, just to put it in perspective here, in the 80s, you know, fanzines had kind of waned, and the rise of the actual publication, you know, the magazines, comic book culture and collectability magazines came up. Things like Amazing Heroes, Comic Collector, uh, Comic Scene magazine. These were all coming around here, and I remember, I think it was Comic Collector number one had, uh, the cover image of it was uh, Action Comics number one, and how it recently sold for $13,000. Could you imagine paying thirteen grand for Action Comics number one? I'm not sure you can get that for under six figures now. I'm sure you can't get it for under six figures now. I think someone bought the actual issue number from a crumpled edition of Action Comics number one for something like 50 grand not too long ago. It maybe wasn't 50 grand, but it was a ridiculous amount of money for a shred of paper, <laughs> you know? So just to put it in perspective here, comics collectability was a different animal back then. And of course, comics fans knew about it, the industry knew about it, but the world 
didn't yet know about it. And then uh, Reggie and I tried tracking down this article. I believe it was in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, maybe it was Life Magazine. It was a mainstream publication, is what I'm trying to say here. And it really shed a light on the potential collectability of comics. Of course, this is all born out of, you know, these auctions, you know, where Action Comics sells for 13 grand. Hey, a 10 cent comic selling for 13 grand is huge, right? Of course, it's silly now to think about something like that going for such a low price, but it was huge at the time. Things like Ninja Turtles, things like the, the, the scarce indie black and white comic going for more than cover price. This was novel to the mainstream, and it, it signified a shifting in what comic books were as a, as a physical piece. Were they media? Were they collectible? Were they both? Were they neither? It became a real discussion in the mainstream. Suddenly, we were getting million print runs of comics with collector's item written on the cover. <laughs> and then things like Wizard Magazine would come out and really, really play into the uh, lie that there was some sort of scarcity involved and you had to get these books and these books were going to pay your way through life. And of course, we all know how that played out here. And anybody who's visited a, you know, a quarter or 50 cent bin <laughs> over the past decade or so will know how many of those can't miss collector's item classics are... Uh, not even worth the paper they're printed on, which takes us into the modern age here, where comics are in something of an identity crisis. You know, the stories are... I, I don't think we want to admit this, but the stories seem secondary. Of course, there are indies out there. There are what I like to call the four-color Netflix pitches that uh, are all over the uh, indies right now. So stories are primary in those situations here, but... For the big two, it feels like story is secondary, and uh, they're just scrambling to find ways to make these comic books collectible again. And it says so much that the one way that they seem to think they can do this is by making it so you could never actually read the damn book. You know, you're literally putting it under glass, or, or whatever the hell a CGC slab is made out of, some sort of plastic, I'm, I'm sure. But it does sound a little bit more romantic to say under glass, doesn't it? It really, really speaks to the priorities of the industry and uh, what, what it's been allowed to become, what we've let it become, what we've helped it become. It's unfortunate. And I mean, I always like to say, far be it from me to tell you how to be a fan. You know, I don't want anybody to tell me how to fan. Don't tell me to go see the movies. You know, don't tell me to do this. And in return, I will, you know, try to control myself from... <laughs> You know, getting up on my soapbox and telling you not to buy variant covers and not to buy slabs. Do what makes you happy, of course. If there's an issue of a comic book that is very, very special to you, it's a you know a milestone issue in your life and your fandom and your collectability, by all means, have it slabbed, buy it slabbed, you know, have it you know displayed in your office, in your room, in your wherever. And of course, there's an argument to be made for Golden Age books, which... I would love it if Golden Age books could still be read without risk of just turning into dust. But uh, unfortunately, you know, paper is paper. <laughs> and uh, paper is a... It's, it's got a long life to it, but, um, I mean, comic books are usually mistreated, especially back in the long ago. You know, rolled up, put in your pocket, you know, corners tore off so you can take your gum out of your mouth. It's, you know, there's... They were treated a lot differently back then, and of course, um, for preservation, sure, slab those books. Absolutely. 100%. It's just the practice right now where, I mean, we've got local shops here in town where you could buy your book and not even take it home with you. They will keep the book, send it in to be slabbed. It's, it just feels so phony, so artificial, and it feels like something that, uh, has fundamentally changed, you know, the DNA of the comic book fan and just comic books in general. So yeah, not a fan of it. <laughs> not a fan of it. It did give me a lot of food for thought. It did let my mind wander, and it did allow me to drone on for a long, long time today. Which, as a, you know, fake-ass comics historian, I love to do. I love comic book history. I love the history of the fandom. I love all of it. So it's, uh, yeah, I, I like having the opportunity to, uh, you know, indulge myself and uh, take a trip down, you know, comics history way. So I want to thank Professor Allen for facilitating this discussion and also for listening and writing in and uh, co-signing with, uh, with my point of view. So thank you so, so much, Alan.
Now, of course, if anybody listening has thoughts on this, I would love to hear them. I would love to hear your opinions. Am I totally off base, or do you agree with me? Maybe you agree with me on some stuff, disagree on others. Maybe I'm being too uh, disparaging or dismissive of an, an entire other leg of the fandom that I just cannot wrap my head around. Also, I want to hear your thoughts on Legion of X. Do you feel it's a good follow-up to Way of X? Where do you see it going? Are you interested in the exploration of uh, Krakoan laws and the uh, discussions into philosophy and religion and all that kind of hinky stuff. I would love to hear your thoughts, and of course I invite you and encourage you to write in and share them. You can find me several different ways. On Twitter, I'm at Ace Comics. Instagram, 90s X-Men. The email is weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, and of course the voicemail is 623-396-JERK, which I think you can actually send a text message to as well. I Didn't even think about that, but I know I got a text from, I think, a local politician trying to get me to sign a petition. So, uh, hey, if you want to text me, you can text me there. For blog posts and show notes, you can head to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. Of course, the complete audio archives, you can find them anywhere you find noise, but you can also go directly to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. But I think that's going to do it for today. I'm hoping to keep this daily streak going, at least for now. But uh, like I said at the start here, I don't know what my <laughs> I don't know what my symptoms are here. And uh, even now, my throat is scratchy, but I don't know if it's in my head or not. We'll see. We'll play it by ear. So hopefully, New Mutants number 25 will come out very, very soon. But uh, if not, it will be coming out um, sometime very soon, I hope. But... How's about I shut up? I want to thank you all so, so much for choosing to spend some of your day with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.